Well, this is Current Yield Grants Interest Rate Observer of the Air, and I welcome you, and uh, I also welcome our somewhat far-flung regulars, Eric Whitehead, Man Control Panel, is joining us today from Smithtown, Long Island, where it's raining. Yeah, I can report that. And um, Evan Lorenz, the great deputy editor of Grants, is at his uh, socially distanced post in Brooklyn, and I, for my part, am in Schoharie, New York, which is, uh, well, think of it as the opposite of uh, East Hampton. It is a farming community in upstate New York, and it's as far away from East Hampton as, as my wife and I could get within commuting distance. So that's where we are. And we are joined today, and we'll be talking to him in a moment. We're joined with Will Thompson, who was the managing partner and I think the founder of a very interesting operation called Massive Capital. And he has some wholly refreshing and I think very provocative and uh, it sounds like very promising ideas on this fraught business of ESG investing. Before we talk to Will, I want to report that we had a grants conference last uh, Tuesday, right? Yeah, Tuesday, October 20th. Uh, no, two Tuesdays ago. And it was fabulous. We were the first event in this massive cavernous place called Javits Center in Manhattan. This place is the one that holds, holds, uh, hosts the, uh, the auto show. Uh, we were not quite the auto show in size, but the Javits Center people made us feel as if we were. I would guess there are like 50 or 55 or 60 tops um, uh, attendees in this room. With, you know, it felt like there were tumbleweeds going by. Everyone was properly you know, distanced, and, um, and we had uh, many hundreds of people dialing in on the webcast. Uh, but um, the people at the Javits Center were almost at a loss for words to express their gratitude that someone had decided to get out of bed in the morning and do something by way of uh, making a statement that we all ought to think about at least return to a life of uh, living as opposed to a life of hiding. So, but apart from that, the, uh, the, the uh, intellectual content of the day, I think, was uh, unsurpassed. And you will find it, you grant subscribers in the current issue of grants, which is in your inbox and may yet be in your postal delivery box. So that will include the, the, conclude the uh, for now, I can't warrant to be the only commercial interruption, but for now, that is the end of the commercial. So Will Thompson is with us, and Will has the most interesting uh, CV or resume that I've come across this week. An alumnus of Trinity College, he holds a, um, a graduate degree, a master's degree in government from Harvard. Well, that's, that's laudable, but not um, intriguing. What is intriguing is that Will was a strategic and economic advisor to NATO and uh, others in Afghanistan. That's not Afghanistan, New Jersey. That's Afghanistan, Afghanistan. And uh, he is the founder of something called Massive Capital. And before doing that, he worked uh, with a, a branch of the Lloyd's Insurance Operation. And uh, he's um, a value investor with a contrarian bent and the greatest gift of all for an investor, in my opinion, that of imagination. So, Will Thompson, welcome to Current Yield. Uh, Jim, thanks for having me. Well, it is a pleasure indeed. You know, this business of ESG investing, I, I just, uh, I, it, it really rubs me the wrong way because it is, uh, it's ill-defined. It is conformist. In my line of work, journalism, the conformity is just palpable. You could cut it with a knife. And Evan, I think I, I sent you this thing. There's a, a Fortune magazine just came out with a announcing, a prideful announcement that the Fortune and Refinitiv have uh, included a partnership that aims to make corporate diversity disclosure the new standard of doing business. And, uh, you know, this, this diversity and inclusion is fine, but as I see it, especially in our 
principal focus at grants is, uh, you know, the monetary affairs and like, there's no diversity of intellect. There's a diversity, maybe, as there ought to be in, in hiring by dint of nationality, race, what have you. But uh, anyway, that blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to go down that uh, particular rabbit hole anymore, anymore. We are talking now mostly about ESG having to do with climate, which itself is a, a fraught area of politics as well as of objective science. So um, we are here, besides the uh, opportunity for me to deliver a very lengthy monologue, which I'll presently conclude, we are here to talk about Will Thompson and Massive Capital's new idea, which is, uh, which is a laid out in a, in a wonderful position paper called Failure to Impact, Are ESG Funds Delivering on Investors' Ambitions? And uh, the answer to that is, Will Thompson, is the answer yes or is that no? Uh, well, Jim, from our perspective, uh, the answer is no. And uh, as we sort of lay out in our paper, we looked at a couple of surveys about sort of what the goals of investors in ESG mutual funds and ETFs were. And, you know, the primary goal was not only to make money, which is, you know, sort of a goal all investors have, but also to have an impact and to allocate their capital to companies that were making a difference with climate change. And when we reviewed the products, primarily ETFs is what we looked at, we found that you know the allocations within those products were mostly to companies that admittedly didn't have significant impacts on the environment, which is positive, I guess, but also didn't do anything to advance the goal of decarbonization. And so while, uh, you know, Apple and Microsoft, which are the largest allocations products, are, are great companies and my iPhone is surgically attached to my hand, um, whether or not they decarbonize and what they do really doesn't make any difference to climate change either now or in the future. Right. Um, but the answer is no. So the, so, the, so Evan pointed this out to me that uh... – these ESG portfolios are largely indistinguishable from generic FANG portfolios, right, Evan? Is that what you uh, Yeah, I mean, the, the top holdings are Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, Alphabet. I mean, it's indistinguishable from the top five holdings in the S&P 500, which are over 20% of the index. It's indistinguishable from the NASDAQ. It's indistinguishable from most tech portfolios. Right. It's, it's more, other, yeah. more importantly, when we when we took a look at a couple of them, not only were they indistinguishable, but uh, if you look at something like the uh, – iShares MSCI ESG ETF, which is one of the biggest in the world, its allocation to oil and natural gas companies was basically the exact same as the regular ETF, except you paid more for it. <laughs> Lots of advantage. Yeah. So what I found most intriguing, okay, so that's the conventional approach. And um, so um, you, Will Thompson, at Massive, that's as distinct from Massive, right? This is, you're, you're a relatively young firm, so you're not yet Massive, but you're M-A-S-S-I-F. Yes. The approach is, <laughs> yeah, we're aspirationally Massive. All right, yeah. fine. So, but the, the approach that you are advocating, and I dare say you are taking in your own investing, is to find companies that not have met various criteria, but on their, are on their way to making a tangible improvement, a difference in the world's drive to decarbonize and to do it profitably, right? So what you want to do is to actually get in on the ground floor of aspiring companies, aspiring in the sense of seeking to make money by leading the decarbonization drive. Is that a fair summary? 
Yeah, I think that that sort of roughly covers it. You know, we tend to you know, divide the world and our portfolio, if you will, into companies that are transitioning and companies that are enablers. And uh, what you describe right there is, I think, the transitioning companies. And so those are businesses that produce sort of economically critical goods like steel and cement, chemicals, industrial gases, et cetera. Uh, that we need in the modern world, but have large carbon footprints and have management teams that have sort of thoughtfully thoughtful, uh, thoughtfully decided they're going to adjust their strategies and operations uh, towards a low carbon footprint. And in doing so, we'll hopefully have, you know, sort of higher quality earnings, increased margins, sort of a lower cost of capital that we see that uh, in some of these green bonds, reduced tail risks arising from climate change. So these are firms that have a high carbon footprint. So they are the producers of carbon, but they're transitioning uh, to a low carbon footprint. And then we think of the world uh, as having companies that enable those transitions. So those would be copper miners, uh, wind turbine manufacturers, companies that will support the transitioning firms. Right, right. Yeah. I guess the, uh, uh, the kind of the index investment you'd want, the great prize would be, for example, a cement business, a startup cement business run by people who have a new idea and who are going to uh, manufacture cement in a new and uh, environmentally improved manner. I, I read with great interest your facts, uh, you laid out these facts that the cement business is a, is a massive world polluter, but somebody's going to come along as I read your manifesto and produce cement much less um, objectionable carbon content and you can make money doing it. So are you finding these companies? Yeah, I mean, we, we uh, so we haven't found one in cement yet. You know, we, we continue to look. All industries have not found their, uh, you know, sort of their path forward in this world yet. But that we are finding companies that are transitioning um, is absolutely the case. And that we are finding companies with management teams that are quite actively thinking about how they're going to do it um, is certainly the case. And so at the moment, I would say the firms that are sort of leading the charge are a lot of utilities. This is because the solution set, if you will, renewable power in its many different forms is, is a little clearer than say what the solution set is for uh, steel, chemicals, and cement. But as we sort of continue down this decarbonization path, that these other companies will find solutions uh, is, is a certainty. Yeah. Um, well, uh, tell us about air products as a as an indicative case of what how you think about things and contrasting that with how the world is accepting things without examining the the facts and the rationale. Yeah, so um, Air Products is of course one of the great industrial gas companies out there. They're you know, profitable and uh, have a, a fascinating business model. But one of the things they've sort of decided to do over the last couple of years is uh, charge into the coal gasification business. And this is mostly in Asia. They're building these big coal gasification plants that enable uh, China and Indonesia and a couple of other countries to turn all the coal they've got into a, a liquid or, and or a gas fuel. And, you know, APD is quite interesting. Its history is one of pretty good a good environmental footprint in the grand scheme of things. And so, you know, depending on who you look at, uh, and there are lots of these ESG scores out there, we, we tend to look at Thomson Reuters because that's the one we've got access to. You know, they've got an environmental score of, you know, seven out of 10. 
that environmental score is actually better than Apple's, which is kind of interesting. But, you know, over the next couple of years, as they build out this huge footprint of coal gasification right. in places like China, you know, they're going to become one of the largest carbon emitters in either the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones. I don't remember which now behind only, you know, sort of Exxon, Duke and Chevron or something. And yet they have this great ESG score and are in most ESG ETFs. And so, you know, that's a company that is in some ways heading in the wrong direction and yet is rewarded for it because it has historically had a good carbon footprint. Um, oh, Will, one thing I, I found fascinating in your letter is the capricious nature of these scores. You compared um, Air Products to Orsted, a, a company that makes windmills. And surprisingly, the company that makes windmills, I believe you said, rates lower than the company that's building coal gasification plants. Yeah, so Orsted, so Orsted doesn't make windmills, but it's, an, it's a, sort of an interesting case. They're a wind power company. And so Orsted used to be a company called Dong Energy, which was an oil company. And in about 2009, they decided to make a strategic shift. Uh, and they very sort of thoughtfully and forward-looking and in a forward-looking way said, we're going to get into the offshore wind business. They're a leader in the business, one of the most innovative, you know, sort of wind power companies out there. Uh, and yet, yeah, they rank more or they rank poorly relative to APD, uh, despite the fact that, you know, they're a poster child, frankly, for what companies should be doing. I think... Uh... Uh, that there is uh, much less thought than conformity in this ESG movement, and um, you know we, you know your, your firm, as as I mentioned, is uh, mass if, but the massive capital firm, of course, is BlackRock. My colleague Evan Lorenz has has kept a kind of a made a metal file of some of the pronouncements of the CEO of BlackRock, who was a very virtuous chap, Larry Fink, and. Um, uh, before we uh, came uh, on this program, uh, Evan observed that uh, Larry Fink is, uh, would not fit in at Massive Capital. Why is that, Evan? Well, Larry says all the right things, and he browbeats CEOs into trying to uh, get more green. But while he's saying all this, he's flying on a private plane around the entire world. Yeah. Isn't that annoying? But apart from that, it seems to be that, uh, that Larry's default MO is one of uh, coercion, and it seems to, that's, that's Massive Capital. But Massive capital, Will Thompson, their approach is one of a much more capitalistic way of, way of doing things, which is to latch on to the transitioning companies, look forward, not backward, and to look for constructive solutions rather than for conformity to some virtue grid. That's why I was so intrigued by this manifesto failure to impact. So, um, uh, Will, tell us how, in the course of an ordinary day at Massive Capital, you implement these ideas. You obviously look for run companies on screens. You do, I'm sure, a lot of uh, microeconomic investigation, security analysis. How do you go looking for these transitioning companies? Yeah, so we um, <clears throat> so we've looked at all these various different pathways, if you will, that organizations like the UN, the IPCC, have come up with. And they've sort of established uh, what we think of as a carbon budget. Okay, between now and 2050, if you want to keep the climate to changing a uh, change to less than 1.5 degrees, this is how much carbon we have to spend. Right, and when we take the end goal of how much carbon we have to spend, we sort of back it up to where we currently are and see which industries have carbon footprints and trends that are not going to put them in place to fit into that budget. 
And those points we look at and say, okay, th that's the point where something's got to change. So right. who are the companies in those industries where they have overspent or appear like they're going to overspend their carbon budget, who are making strategic decisions and capital investments in both, you know, plant and R&D such that, you know, they can make a difference to whether that industry fits into the carbon budget or not. Um, and that sort of constraints-based approach, we think, has, has been productive in throwing up uh, not only the transitioning firms, but also pointing us in the direction of the companies that enable the transition. They're going to have uh, you know, significant demand growth for their product. Right. So it helps us with both. So, Will, you are, um, uh, uh, your, your tribal affiliation is that of value investor, which, you know, we can't help ourselves. You know, we just, that's who we are. We would rather not be out of fashion as we have never been out of fashion before. But, you know, that's, you can't change now. It's just too late. That's where we're born. Okay. So tell us about, as a value investor, tell us about the difference in valuations between the companies that have a backward looking, fine, conforming ESG score on the one hand and those transitioning companies that appear to be a problem, but actually are on the path to designing solutions. Do you find valuation disparities that make the latter group attractive as investments? Absolutely. I mean, they're just, you know, right now with the way sort of capital is flowing into both ETFs and these, you know, sort of target date retirement funds and things of that nature, if you've got a positive ESG score, you know, you're getting capital flows and those capital flows are uh, value agnostic, right? You know, ETF buys, it doesn't care. Right. But steel companies who maybe are looking at uh, trying to figure out how they can get rid of their blast furnace or maybe not use coking coal in their blast furnace, you know, these guys are out of favor. Cement companies, well, cement's just boring for most people, right? It, it's not as cool as Apple and the iPhone. Um, who said that? Well, who? who? <laughs> I, All I, right. I, mean, uh, I, I guess that's true. Look at these companies. So. <laughs> You know, they're just out of favor and uh, these real asset businesses, we think of these businesses as having real assets that exist in the real world that we all need. Software is great, but in the end, we all live in the real world and they are mostly out of favor. And a lot of the enablers uh, have caught a bid as of late because of the renewable power uh, enthusiasm, but mining firms, for example, which have long been an area that we've specialized in, copper miners, things of that nature, nobody wants to invest in them, uh, despite the fact that none of this transition is possible without. Right. Give us an example of two, if you would, please, of uh, value-compelling firms that are transitioning to something in the way of a constructive solution to our carbon problems. Right. So I think, you know, a great example, uh, and this pairs nicely with our sort of conversation about Orsted earlier, is a company called RWE in Europe. RWE was uh, one of Europe's sort of dirtiest utilities. Uh, they have a, a huge fleet uh, of coal burning electricity power plants. And what they've done is they've engaged in an asset swap with Eon, uh, where they sent Eon some of their transmission assets and a few other bits and pieces. And Eon has given uh, RWE their very large portfolio and pipeline of renewable power projects. And so what's going to happen over the course of, say, now to about 2025, as the pipeline gets built out, 
is that RWE is going to go from one of the most polluting utilities uh, with volatile earnings associated with you know, changes in the price of coal and natural gas and things like that to one of Europe's largest um, renewable power producers. And over that time, you know, we're going to get higher quality, steadier earnings. The margins on their renewable power projects are higher than they are on their coal. Uh, their cost of capital is going down. The tail risk associated with climate change that they experience is decreasing. And over the course of, say, the next five years, uh, one can expect the sentiment change that occurred with Orsted to happen to RWE. And, you know, Orsted's doubled in price over the course of its transition. RWE is very likely to double in price also. W whether the value doubles we're not quite as certain it doubles, but we think the value increases by 70% or so. So it's a it's a real win, but it's a, a sort of a prime example of one of these transitioning firms. How is RWE now valued? Do you happen to know offhand? Well, I, just as I joined this call, I shut down my computer and all. <laughs> well, I tell you what, the readers of Grant's Interest Rate Observer may learn more about these companies in the future. We're not tipping our hand. I'm just saying that uh, it wouldn't hurt to subscribe. Will, this has been uh, just fascinating. And um, uh, you mentioned, I think, in one of your missives that uh, it's okay to short companies as well. Do you have any? Uh, this is very, very tricky business, uh, ladies and gentlemen, listeners. I, um, Evan, we should, uh, we should flag this, should we not, not to do this at home? Yeah, uh, widows and orphans, yeah. please turn off the podcast. Yeah, but do um, uh, you have any candidates for short sales companies that have perhaps are have, uh, enjoying one of these mechanistic, ill-informed ratings, uh, ESG ratings that is overdone and is likely to, uh, to run into the risk of uh, facts in the future? Yeah, so, um, I mean, I, as you said, suggest, sort of be very careful. And uh, we've uh, executed our or expressed our opinions on a couple of these companies via options rather than straight out equity to sort of contain our risk. But one of the areas we think is interesting at shorting right now is some of the companies engaged in uh, the sort of hydrogen enthusiasm. Companies like Plug Power uh, on Bloom Energy. No doubt hydrogen will eventually be uh, a component of our energy system, at least in our opinion. But whether a uh, small startup that can't make money on the projects that they're currently selling are going to be capable of building out hydrogen infrastructure is uh, a whole other question. Yeah. Bloom and Plug Power are both laying out ambitious uh, hydrogen infrastructure plans and have hydrogen-based products um, that you know, they're just questionable. Blooms more so than plug power, but both uh, look like they will depend on capital markets for their lives, may probably aren't going to make money on their hydrogen schemes. Hey, Will, um, this is probably a, a little bit fanciful. I, would you rule out a takeover of BlackRock and you substituting yourself for Larry Fink, bringing a more enlightened, uh, market-oriented an enterprise-driven approach to ESG. Uh, could this happen at some future date? <laughs> well, um, I certainly dream that it could happen, but uh, <laughs> well, that AUM level is uh, is an open. <laughs> Although I will say, I'm not sure I want to have the capital allocation problems that Larry Fink has. I like to be able to go where I'm, I, I find interesting yeah. opportunities, and those can often be capital constrained in comparison to the trillions of dollars he's got. So we'll see. We'll see. Well, um, I think that is a project 
perhaps best left uh, for the future. But for the present, uh, Will Thompson of Massive Capital, that's with an F at the end. Thank you for being with us today on Current Yield. It has been uh, a true pleasure to talk to you. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Until next time, this is Jim Grant on behalf of Grant's Interest Rate Observer and the Current Yield Podcast. Podcast.